Pangea prayer and pretending God is real. All that and more on this episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike. It's a weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm Science Mike, of course, and I'm completely blown away by the reception to the program already. Thousands of people subscribed on iTunes after just one episode. You guys are nuts. I'm totally excited to see where you take the show. So keep those questions coming. I can't do it without you. Let's get this started. Our first question this week comes from Tom in New Jersey, who sent in a pretty old school paradox question. (laughs) There's all kind of questions people ask each other to try to prove whether God exists or not. It's a very boring game people play on the internet that I used to have a lot of enthusiasm for. Uh, But I thought it'd be really fun to tackle this question with science instead of the usual theology that goes into it. So here we go. Question one for this week. Can God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it. Now, this question is designed to present a paradox. Since God is said to be all-powerful or almighty and able to do anything, the question poses a problem for omnipotence because either God can't create the rock or he can't lift it. There's no way for an omnipotent God to win here. But this question actually says more about the human frame of reference than it does about God or physics. What do I mean? Well, human intuition has developed and evolved under a particular set of circumstances. Like Liam Neeson, we have a particular set of skills, and those skills are understanding the way objects behave when they're a bit bigger than a grain of sand and a bit smaller than a mountain. That's the environment that we find food and avoid prey in. Uh, That's where we build civilizations. Everything humans do and that our intuition was designed to process happens on those scales. That also means that the behavior of very small things, say quantum mechanics, or very large things, say general relativity, does not line up with our intuition at all. And this so-called paradox absolutely reveals the flaws in our intuition. What does it mean to lift something? If I lift something, I am uh, using energy to work against gravity's force upon it. So if I lift my iPhone off the desk, I'm using the biomechanical energy stored in my muscles, using my bones as levers to lift my phone against the 9.8 meters per second squared of the Earth's gravity well. That's lifting. Well, if we keep making a rock bigger, it's going to have its own gravity. Everything has its own gravity, of course, that has mass. Uh, But rocks have uh, more gravity. And we already have a word for giant rocks. They're called planets, right? So if we continue to scale up a rock, at some point it's going to be a planet, And if that planet got larger than, say, the Earth, you'd actually be lifting the Earth instead of lifting the planet. 
because you'd be working against the larger body's gravity. Of course, if you had a rock that large near the Earth, a planet-sized rock, the tidal forces of these two rocks acting on each other would cause catastrophic damage to them both. Physics, uh, specifically gravitation, would tear them to pieces. It would not be a good scene. Uh, but let's let's think bigger, okay? Let's just keep making our rock bigger, and let's just assume we can set it next to a, a, a mass and then lift it. Well, as we increase the mass of a rocky object, eventually you're going to get a star. Now, I had to do a little research because everything I know about star formation has to do with gassy planets because in the natural world, there's an upper bound on the size that rocky planets get. Um, so if you look at Jupiter, which is a gas giant, it's made of the same stuff as our sun. Uh, if you increased its mass, you know, 80 times, uh, you, you'd get a star. But if you in, made a similar rocky object the size of this, this stellar Jupiter, you would not get a star because the, the silica and the, the iron and the sorts of things that are in rocky planets don't fuse as easily as hydrogen and helium. So you would actually need a rock primarily composed of silicon and other elements dozens of times the size of our sun. Uh, but at that point, it would cease to be a rock. It would become a star. <laughs> so it's no longer, there's an upper bound in our universe on the size a rock can be. Now, if we change this so-called rock com composition to be primarily iron, no matter how much iron you add to a mass, no star can fuse it together. Right? Fusion happens, stars are born, when the gravity in the middle exceeds the force of the atoms and their nucleuses holding themselves apart. Gravity gets stronger than the repulsive forces. That's why stars are stars. No matter how big a star gets, you can't get enough gravitation to fuse iron. That only happens when stars explode. That's how we get elements heavier than iron. Are you with me? <laughs> and so... We could still scale up if we had a mainly iron rock. You could scale it much larger than you could uh, a, a traditional rocky planet. What would happen? Well, eventually, it would become a black hole. Because although you couldn't fuse the iron, you could continue to add mass and increase gravitation until you get a singularity. The gravity well gets so small that you get an event horizon. And now you're iron rock star turns into a black hole. It's no longer a rock. There's absolutely hard limits on how big a rock can be in our universe. Now, of course, if you continue to add mass to this black hole, it's going to get larger and larger and larger. And if you increase its mass enough, it could potentially consume the observable universe. So, can God make a rock so heavy that even he can't lift it? No, of course not. By the definition of what a rock is, there are hard limits on how big a rock can be in our universe. Hey, Science Mike. I've got a three-parter for you about the brain and spirituality. The first part is, when we use our imaginations, what does that mean uh, in terms of the cognition? going on, what parts of the brain get activated and interact with one another when our imagination, our mind's eye is being used. So second part is what happens in the brain when we're praying and connecting with God. And then finally, how do those two things interact? And can that teach us anything uh, about 
healthy spirituality. Thank you. Oh, you've asked me like my favorite question. I love it so much that I have about a 45 to 60 minute talk I do on this topic. So we're going to do a very top line view uh, for the podcast today. Uh, one, what happens in your brain as you imagine things? Well, it depends on what you're imagining. Imagination is an incredibly varied activity neurologically. When we've brain scanned people who are imagining something, the parts of their brain that are responsible for processing that sensory input in a non-imaginative scenario lights up, right? So if you're imagining verbal things, then your verbal cortex and the left temporal lobe is going to light up. If you're imagining something visual, then your visual cortex in the back of the brain is going to light up. Um, so pretty much the whole brain can be active in imagination, but it's really important to understand that brain imaging is in the Galileo stage, right? When we first had telescopes, wow, we learned a lot about the universe because for the first time we could peer deeply into space. But a lot of what we figured out was wrong because our tools were primitive and our understanding limited. So here we have the brain, this incredibly complicated, intricate bit of matter in the universe. And our tools are still pretty primitive. Light years, ages ahead of what we've had in the past, but ultimately primitive compared to what we're examining. Now let's talk about prayer. Uh, depending on how you understand God, different things happen when you pray. There are two primary neurological conceptions of God. Uh, when people who believe in a loving God contemplate God or pray, they see increased activity in their prefrontal cortex. That's in the front of your brain. That's uh, where your agency and willpower come from. Also, your ability to focus. Uh, they also show activity in their anterior cingulate cortex. That's a part of the brain sort of between the limbic system, uh, the primitive brain, and the higher brain that's responsible for compassion and empathy and love, among other things. Uh, you're also going to have activity, if you're a Westerner, in your temporal lobe, the part of the brain responsible for language, because we mainly speak to God. People from Eastern faiths, when they pray, tend to have activity in the visual cortex, because their prayers tend to be centered around uh, a meditative practice that involves visualization. Now, uh, you can also believe that God is primarily wrathful or angry. And if that's the case, when you pray, you're going to have prefrontal cortex activity, of course, but you're also going to have activity in your amygdala. That's the part of the brain responsible for fear and anger, which is like the most powerful human emotions we have. They trump everything else. They cause stress. They cause anxiety. Uh, they're the fight or flight response, and they actually uh, undermine the ability of the prefrontal cortex to do its thing. Our brains have a strict energy budget, and we don't have the uh, oxygen or nutritive or heat capacity to both run our very, very advanced and an expensive prefrontal cortex and our very potent amygdala at the same time. You cannot be both analytical and angry at once. It's neurologically impossible. Now... The last part of the question, what does that tell us about healthy spirituality? It tells us that belief in a loving God is most beneficial to our health and to our behavior. When you believe that God is loving and you pray towards a loving God and contemplate a loving God, you're going to see lower stress. You're going to see reduced blood pressure. You're going to see an increased ability to experience compassion and empathy, you're even going to have an improved ability to focus and concentrate to the point that 
this type of prayer has been shown to be therapeutic for people with Alzheimer's or dementia in medical trials. But if you believe that God is angry, it's going to increase the arousal in your limbic system. You're going to get angry easier. You're going to be fearful of outsiders. You're going to be uh, have trouble forgiving yourself and forgiving others. So peering into the brain actually tells us a great deal of what theological beliefs are actually helpful and beneficial to humans versus harmful. And it's absolutely clear, open and shut, that belief in a loving God works best. Hey, Science Mike, this is Christopher. I have a question regarding Pangea. I remember being in my Christian grade school and raising my hand and saying, hey, it looks like all these continents are puzzle pieces that fit together in a much larger supercontinent. Uh, I was rebuked thoroughly and told my idea was <laughs> anti-biblical and anti-God. Uh, but today, I am still raising my hand saying, hey, it looks like all these continents fit together in a much larger supercontinent. I uh, would really love your thoughts and insights, if any, on Pangea and geological history as a whole. Uh, but more so, I'd love to know your opinions on why you think this concept, as well as some other ones, are so threatening to the evangelical Christian world, especially here in the States. Thanks, Mike. Well, first, I'd love to note that Pangea is a widely accepted concept in geology and geologic science. Uh, there's not really any controversy among people who are experts in the earth <laughs> about the existence of Pangaea. Now, Pangaea was a supercontinent about 300 million years ago. Uh, it was not the first supercontinent. There is a, a cyclical action on the earth, geologists believe, where the continents and their drifting are sometimes merging into supercontinents and separating again. And it's also important to note that Pangaea was not all of the Earth's landmass, just most of it. Um, now, how do we know Pangaea existed? Well, the continents move. We know that. Plate tectonics is active today. Uh, our continental plates float on the Earth's mantle, and they move. And we see this happening right now. California is sliding against the rest of the United States. Uh, places that continental plates are, are crushing in each other. You can get uh, mountain ranges and places that they're drifting apart. You can get rifts in the Earth's surface. And this action of plates drifting and, and releasing energy as they have great friction energy buildup is earthquakes, right? So plate tectonics is really, really, really well-grounded science. Now, if we, if we want to talk specifically about Pangaea, how do we know that continents once fit together other than, you know, that they look like a jigsaw puzzle? Well, if you put those uh, jigsaw pieces together and then study, for example, the distribution of fossils from that time in history, you'll find that there are species separated by thousands of miles of ocean that are identical in that time period. Uh, how, how are these diverse groups not only um, across these continents, but in places that really line up well with each other if you squish the continents back together? The same is true for different rock formations and rock stratification. If you begin to look under the Earth's surface, you'll find that on other sides of these drifts, uh, when you go into rocks from that time period, you find very similar rock formations. And finally, um, coal. Coal forms in warm and humid environments, and yet we can find coal in Antarctica, the coldest place on the planet today. And that means sometime in the past, Antarctica was warm 
and humid because the process by which coal forms is really well understood. So that's interesting, but it doesn't really tell us a lot about why um, there is this controversy in the first place. Now, um, I grew up evangelical, and I don't remember any tremendous upset about um, Pangea specifically, uh, but I do remember uh, people being upset that geologists tend to assert that there was no global flood. And I've experienced this already in this podcast. In the first episode, I mentioned that I don't read Genesis literally, and that I believe that Genesis is, especially the early chapters, a largely mythical work or mythic work. Uh, and that it certainly contains components of history, but large parts of Genesis are based on oral tradition and mythology. And that upset uh, some people and confused others. When I say Genesis is mythical, I don't mean Genesis is bad or wrong. The reason people get upset about Pangea or the flood is that they have been taught that a concept called biblical inerrancy or biblical infallibility is essential to our understanding of God, essentially that the accuracy of the historical claims of the Bible are an essential part of proving or believing that God exists. Now this, uh, as we understand history, is a relatively recent phenomenon. It's not a, an ancient belief in the church, and even early saints, uh, for example, St. Augustine, spoke against reading uh, Genesis literally and encouraged people to let science be science. Uh, science is great at uncovering facts about the physical world, so let's just let it. Let it be science. Let it do what it does. But when you've attached your belief in God to a belief that the Bible always 100% accurately describes the events of history, when science builds compelling cases for other stories and other ideas, that threatens your belief in God, and it's really frightening to have your belief in God threatened because for people who believe in God, uh, brain science tells us that that's foundational to their identity, and people do not like it when you threaten their identity, myself included. Nobody likes to have their identity threatened, so I try to be very gracious towards people uh, who disagree with me on biblical inerrancy and uh, the story of how the earth was formed, but you can't accept modern science and accept biblical inerrancy. I know I, I just generated a thousand email messages, but uh, I got to call it like I see it. When we have this mentality, it creates an environment where we force people to choose between God and science. We make it God versus science, and this actually turns people away from the faith. What's much more important about Christianity is the way that it calls us to a better life, the way that we're called to emulate Jesus and to be people of love and grace and forgiveness and to rely on God for our well-being and not on ourselves. That's way, way more compelling stuff than Pangea or Adam and Eve. So I say let science be science. I say Pangea is an open and shut case in the sciences, uh, but that does not mean that God isn't real or the Bible is worthless. Quite the contrary, as I said in the last episode, Genesis is better than history. It is a thematic exploration of what it means to be human and what it means to try to walk with God. This last question is the reason I have the Science Mike stuff that I do, the reason this podcast exists, the reason I do the liturgists. Um, 
So it came in the email box, and I just want to read it to you before I answer it. Hi, Mike. My name is Emily. I'm writing you today because I want to believe in something. Over the past couple years, I've started to delve into religion and the idea of belief. I am not someone who grew up with religion. I grew up being told I was half Episcopalian and half Jewish. I'd like to say this is a statement coined by Americans that essentially means, you believe in whatever. I feel like I've missed out on a great deal of life by not having something to believe in. I believe in humility and good creating good, but I just constantly feel like there must be something more. There is something moving behind the curtain, but I can't find the rope to pull it back. I've listened to podcasts like Reasonable Doubts, and you made it weird for a while now, not knowing a thing about religion myself. And I've lost count of how many times I've listened to your episode with Pete. I've created reasons to go for a jive just so I can hear the words of doubt and faith arising, blaring in solitude, and I don't know why. I know something is inside of me. I guess I've always pictured myself as an atheist or agnostic, but until I started hearing people talking over my speakers about their belief, I've been hooked. I just don't know where to go from here. Even as I write this, I feel my eyes burning, but I could not label that emotion for you. Where do I start? Thank you. I just don't know who to ask about this. I don't know how to feel about fate. But if I believed in it, I think that this opening to write you would fall under that category. Any guidance you can provide me would be so appreciated. With gratitude, Emily. Emily, thanks so much for your question. Um, I was an atheist for a couple of years. Even though I grew up religious, at some point in my life, I decided this whole thing just didn't make any sense, that the description of God and my understanding of God did not conform to reality. I learned enough about science that God seemed silly and superstitious and childish. But for some time, I wasn't at peace with unbelief. I longed for something more, a meaning for life, some greater plan. In time, I actually found peace in humanism, and I know many people who are happy, healthy, well-adjusted atheists and secular humanists. And towards the end of my era of unbelief, I was one of those too. But <laughs> uh, I returned to the faith. Now, I returned to the faith because I had an experience with God that was powerful and profound and moving. And at this point, is all over the internet. If you're curious, it's a long story. But there's a, a tendency today because modernism and secularism make people feel silly to believe, and they portray belief as somehow unnatural, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Belief in God is a natural, normal, healthy thing for humans. Oxford actually did a study on this, and they found that there were several factors that contributed to the very natural and normal belief humans have in God and in uh, higher callings and higher purposes. One, humans have a remarkable bias towards purpose-based explanations. Uh, we tend to have a belief that our parents are all-knowing as very small children, and, and this belief in an all-knowing parent 
uh, gets transferred to an unseen entity as we learn that our parents uh, are not, in fact, all-knowing. And we also tend to believe in the afterlife. Even in secularized cultures where belief in God is relatively low, belief in the afterlife or some persistence of consciousness beyond death maintains majority support. That's awfully interesting. Um, these things sort of get into a pot and soup together and mean that it seems to be that in people there is some propensity, some need for God. Now, it varies. I think some people uh, don't have as much of a need for God as others. I think I am a person who has a very high need for God. I think my friends who are very happy atheists are on the other ends of that spectrum. But if you're like me, if God is important to you, If belief is something you want to explore, science actually draws a path on how you can feel closer to God and how you can experience God more readily. It begins with prayer. People who pray for at least 30 minutes a day, six days a week, feel remarkably closer to God. Now, if you don't believe in God, praying is going to seem very silly. So let me start by telling you that praying that much has remarkable cognitive and health benefits. So even if God doesn't exist, you're not wasting your time. But to pray, you're going to need to pray to someone or something. So I'm going to tell you something that you may not have heard a church person say before. If you don't believe in God, it's okay to pretend. You can just pretend that God is real. Make God imaginary. Picture a face. Picture a a God as, as you would understand God to be, and begin to pray to him. Because over time, that, that little construct you're building of God is going to become more real to you. This is actually what happens to everyone, by the way. This is how God develops in human brains. So you're going to pray, and if you, if you don't believe enough to pray, you're going to pretend and then pray. You're going to adopt a regular prayer practice, simply talking to God. That's going to take you a lot of the way. But the last part is to put this this faith you have, and I believe that a simple act of prayer and, and, and an openness to the idea that God could exist is a perfectly valid form of faith. But it's going to help if you put your this new faith into practice in some form of spiritual community. Now, if, if you're a person whose beliefs are somewhat ambiguous and... Uh, and you're uncomfortable with some of the more dogmatic claims of Christianity, you probably want to find a spiritual community that is more open. But the fact is, human beliefs are largely driven by social identity. We believe what those around us believe. And so when you immerse yourself into a community of people who love and worship God, it's going to be easier for your brain to make God more real for you. Now, if you want more than belief, You also want to experience God in the sort of mystical and powerful way that I have in my life. You're going to have to up the ante a little more. And there are more specific meditative practices that increase an individual's propensity to have mystical experiences. Those are more intense forms of meditation like centering prayer or the Jesuit spiritual exercises. Any sort of uh, very visual or very deep meditative practice done regularly is going to make it more likely that you experience God in a profound way, especially when practiced in community. Does any of that prove God is real? No, no one can prove God is real. But what we do know through science 
is when people trust that God is real, they can experience God as if God is real. For me, I've given up the search. I don't care if I can prove God is real. It's enough for me just to trust. Thank you guys for another wonderful episode of Ask Science Mike. This is your program because I answer your questions. I have no editorial plan other than following where you guys lead. So if you want to be involved in this program, if you'd like to ask a question and help others learn more about science and faith in the process, just post a question to either Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube using the hashtag AskScienceMike. You can also visit AskScienceMike.com and click the Ask Science Mike button to submit a question that you'd like to submit anonymously. For example, if you're in a faith community that's not open to science, um, you can ask your banned questions here. Uh, if you go to AskScienceMike.com, that will take you to my website, MikeMcCarg.com, where I blog about these topics in greater depth. And you can also find all the ways to contact me. Um, and by the way, if you're interested in having me in an event to talk about science and faith, I do travel and go places, so you can find that on my website as well. I'd like to thank Jeb Bodiford for the wonderful theme song that I enjoy so much. If you uh, have a podcast that you'd like some theme music for, I bet Jeb could help you. And uh, his link is in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com, along with resources to all the questions I answer. There's going to be something for every single question on Ask sciencemike.com that can help you dig deeper and learn more about science. Thanks a lot, you guys, and I will see you next week. Ah!